I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half As As Well, Well, where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. Okay, this is episode number seven? I guess so. I don't know. Anyway, we started in on book two of, of Lord of the Rings, by which I mean the second half of The Fellowship of the Ring. We read chapters one, Many Meetings, through chapter five, The Bridge of Khazad Doom. I personally love this section because, you know, the volume, the book that we're reading is called The Fellowship of the Ring. That hasn't really been relevant to the story up till now. We've just been seeing part of the, we've just been following part of what will eventually become the Fellowship of the Ring, these four hobbits and their adventures. But from like this point kind of onward through the story, we get to spend a lot of time with these new characters. Right. We are getting into the thick of this part of the story of the Lord of the Rings. In this section, the other races of the world come into greater focus. You know, we've been exposed to the Bree folk so far, but other than the Bree folk and Gandalf, we've really just been with the Hobbits. We've had some interactions with elves, but they've kind of been without their own context. Yeah, Um, just really like Gildor in the woods and then Glorfindel comes upon them near the fords and yeah, we don't really get to see them as a people. Right. So let's get into it. Sure. We'll start with... Many meetings. When we last left our main character, he had just passed out. <laughs> we were left with pretty much no idea if he was alive or dead or anything, really. He was trying to escape the ring wraiths, and he did, in fact, make it to Rivendell. And uh, he's woken up after a really long time. He slept for a long, long time. Yeah, like a few days. Yeah. And who is there but the man everyone's been wanting to know where he is, Gandalf. Absolutely. Um, I, I've referenced it before of this sort of Gandalf ex machina <laughs> right. aspect of his character where he uh, always intervenes at the exact right time. Yes. Right when we're starting to really worry and wonder, oh, where's Gandalf? Like, how could he not be part of this situation? Well, he often disappears just in time for things to go bad and right. then reappear just in time to fix them. Um, And this is definitely an instance where that happens. He is the only one in the room with Frodo when Frodo awakes. And they spend a good amount of time explaining basically what happened. Yeah, uh, Gandalf wants him to kind of sleep and just rest, and Frodo's like, I have so many questions. Tell, tell me everything. <laughs> yeah, it's I'm not going to be restful at all if I just have time to sit here and think, I'm awake now, please tell me what the hell has been happening. Yeah. Um, and he finds that, you know, he was really close to turning into a ring wraith, even though right. he made it to Rivendell. There is still a shard of the Morgul blade inside of him that was slowly working its way towards his heart, which, of course, if it pierced his heart, he would become a ring wraith. Yeah, and I think there's a really great point here. Gandalf says, like, this shard, which he bore for, what, like, 17 days? Um, And he mentions that there were many, like, men that would have been overcome much sooner and turned into a wraith. And this really goes to demonstrate that even though the hobbits are this seemingly weak uh, small people they are extremely tough like right, they're, they're hardy they're hardy and tougher than most races and it's also interesting I, I think something that we know already about the hobbits is that they sort of treasure uh good tidings and cheer above what we've seen of the men 
in the story so yeah, far. Yeah, typically more greedy and power hungry. Exactly. Uh, have a lot more power struggles than, than the hobbits sort of, you know, bickering over, I want this house. I want that house. I want this silver. You know, yeah. nothing that we've been exposed to of the humans have, have has been that trivial. And I kind of like this idea. I, I like the whole archetype of the hobbits where they're this merry people who, despite their small size, are actually kind of hardier and stronger um, than many of the other creatures in the world yeah and i would say that it kind of has to do with the fact that because they do value song and cheer over gold that that is what makes them strong right like we talked about in the tom bombadil episode you know the ring doesn't have any power over him because he doesn't desire any power over others so the same thing with the hobbits you know they're pretty content with just this simple life so can you really dominate these people if they don't have that uh, temptation, really? And so I think that, yeah, it's not just that they are by nature kind of tougher than other races. It's like they're tougher because and hardier because they are so content to live such a peaceful lifestyle. And a simple lifestyle. And a simple lifestyle. And, and I think that just speaks volumes about how much Tolkien valued peace and simplicity. Absolutely. Um I just want to dig into this just a little bit more before we move on to more of the plot-driven stuff. Clearly, there's a moralistic element to that conversation. Um, And something that it reminds me of, uh, even though we know that, you know, primarily the the religion that is probably influencing this work is Catholicism. um, But this moralistic presentation of having certain characters who, because of their capacity to want only simple things, they're able to bear greater things um, than anyone would expect. Reminds me a lot of um, certain aspects of like yogic philosophy, which often, Mm. often put forth that if you're seeking enlightenment, like seeking it and that's your goal, it's going to be hard to reach it. Right. Rather than doing the practices for what they're worth and and seeing it as a consistent dedication to a certain way of life. Um, but if you're just trying to get that like, ding, it's all good now, then it's it's not necessarily going to work out. I, I think we've seen this already with Gandalf's refusal towards the ring and, and not wanting to bear it himself. There has been some discussion by Tolkien himself of, of that if Gandalf were to get the ring... It wouldn't be a good thing. He would just be a a righteous tyrant. Yeah, through righteousness, he would become a tyrant um, almost no better than Sauron. Right. It would, would, you know, one cannot claim and master the ring without essentially becoming Sauron. Right. And it goes back to the whole absolute power corrupts corrupts absolutely. absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So we find out um, a lot about how Frodo's been doing and... uh, that Sam has been by his side most of the time. Um, as he always is. As he always is. But he was very dedicated to seeing Mr. Frodo get better. Mm-hmm. And, well, he does. And then they have this great big feast in Frodo's honor. And then later after the feast, they kind of retire to this hall of fire. <laughs> um, Which you've named the blog after. Yeah, I, I thought it was very appropriate. Uh, this is a place where it doesn't seem like time passes. It's just like, this is the perfect place to listen to tales and to listen to songs and hear lore. There's a sleeping figure in the corner. Up until this point, Fredo has no idea where Bilbo went off to after his birthday. Mm-hmm. 
he knows he's been wandering on uh, and when they get there and he's like at this uh at the dinner talking to glowin he's like i would rather see bilbo than like see any great wonder in this world and he finally gets his wish uh, he's unexpectedly met up with bilbo <laughs> who has been kind of uh laying low in rivendell since he's found out that the enemy is searching for him right but we find out that he went to the lonely mountain and now he's come back to rivendell i think it's interesting here that there's again this connection between storytelling uh and mirth sharing and sleep or a trance-like state um i just think that Tolkien clearly loved storytelling and and saw it as this art (laughs) that, um, you know, that he wanted to include in a meta way in his own storytelling. Um, It's not just an art that he practices. It's an art that he wants to talk about. And we see that meta nature of storytelling throughout uh, this entire book. We also find out that Bilbo has a friend in Rivendell, the Dunedain, Mm -hmm. uh, which means the man of the West. And, like, who could this mean? Uh, he said he's writing a song with the Dunedan to perform, and finally Strider shows up. <laughs> and uh, I, I love, I just love how Frodo's like, Dunedan? Uh, why do, you know, what is, why are you called that? And Bilbo's like, Strider, why are you called that? Right. And he's yeah. just like, I have many names. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, and it's great. And I, I, this is one part that I just always makes my heart very full, just knowing that Aragorn and Bilbo are old friends. Yes. Um, I think it's really cute. Uh, and just a little backstory: Aragorn was ten years old and living in Rivendell when Bilbo came through. Okay. Uh, during the Hobbit, and then as we know, on the way back, he spent some time in Rivendell. Right. And so, I'd like to imagine that this is when Bilbo got to know Aragorn as a young boy. Yeah. And so, Aragorn's probably grown up his whole life hearing stories about Bilbo. Definitely. And so, I think it's really cool that now Aragorn, an eighty-seven-year-old man, is. Another rough, rugged ranger we know he's grown up to be is uh, friends with this old hobbit, and they're going off to write a song together. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's quite silly. I think it's really interesting that Bilbo was actually the author of the special poem that is attached to Aragorn's name about his heritage and his eventual ascendance oh, to yeah, the, the throne. All that is gold does not glitter. Um, yeah, all of that. Um, that was written about Aragorn by Bilbo. Right. Uh, I think that's, yeah, that's very great because that's one of my favorite poems in the whole story. You know, in many stories, a poem like that would just like not be attributed. You wouldn't know who had written it. It would be mythic at that point. But um, it's so cool that it's Bilbo because he's our only, you know, previous to this book, he's really our reference point for all of Middle Earth. And part of you reading it, especially how, how hobbits are portrayed within the world, it's like, well, that's just because he's the main character of this story, not because he holds importance outside of this little thing. But it, it's clear through this section that Bilbo is known throughout Middle-earth. Yeah. And well, it's interesting that you said that this would typically be attributed to a mythic thing. And one thing I love about Tolkien's work is some of these characters do feel in the universe mythic. Like going back to the Bree chapter when Frodo's singing this tale about the uh the cow jumped over the moon it's just one of old bilbo's stories right so bilbo is this uh in-universe mythic storyteller and songwriter who has written all these great bard he's yeah exactly he is this great bard of this universe right um who like even today we still know snatches of old bilbo's tunes right like the you know the cow jumped over the moon and i think that's really neat And speaking of poems, we hear the poem that Bilbo and Aragorn have written together. It is the Lay of Arendil, 
And it talks about this great hero of the First Age who sailed to Valinor with one of the Silmarils. He was raised into the heavens as a star, and he became this beacon of hope for the people of Middle-earth in their struggles against the first Dark Lord. And throughout the ages was this renowned star. This hero is actually Elrond's father, who left him to go on this journey when Elrond was only like a boy. And I love the part at the end of this where Bilbo says that Aragorn only added one line, and he said, if you have like the cheek to write about Eärendil in the house of Elrond... <laughs> Uh, you're on your own. And I, I love that because it's just like, yeah, like, Elrond hasn't seen his father since he was a boy. Right. And now he's like this immortal uh, guardian of the heavens, essentially. And Elrond will never really get to meet him again. Yeah. And here's Bilbo just writing a song about it. Yeah, Bilbo gives no fucks. He, he just... He really does Especially in his older age. Um, and like now that he's completely outside of the Shire, it's clear that he's just like this sort of tricksy little, you know, He's always been writer. tricksy. I know. Tricksy but, and false. Yeah, but like, you know, just, he's very playful in his old age. Oh yeah, quite eccentric. Despite being a very playful old man, he does request to see the ring, um, which Frodo is now holding on a, on a chain around his neck. Mm-hmm. Um, and upon revealing it to him the a hush goes over the hall um and when he looks up at bilbo he doesn't see bilbo but instead this kind of decrepit desperate creature looking back he essentially at him. sees Gollum. yeah exactly and it's something that everyone becomes aware of kind of instantaneously that this like power struggle is happening and uh even bilbo you know kind of shocks himself out of it frodo almost hits him he yeah pulls back to to punch him in the face yeah and given that the ring when tolkien originally wrote it wasn't this corrupting influence we've never really seen the ring have uh such a hold on bilbo and we start to see it a little bit in the beginning in a long expected party and gandalf tries to warn him he gets very upset about it and they have sort of a fight but then bilbo realizes like okay yeah maybe i'm getting a little too attached to it but here especially he is like oh my god what have i become like yeah, and it's it's sad because, I mean, he's been without the ring now for, what, like 20 years, 17 years? Yeah, and uh, his first chance he sees Frodo, he's like, has to see it again. Right. Um, and it's really, really sad. Um, yeah, and you can tell that he's ashamed in that moment. and He's ashamed, he's embarrassed. Yeah. He's, um, yeah, and he's like, I'm sorry all of this happened. Like... Bilbo bear, feels like he bears some responsibility for getting everyone into this mess. Right. And even Frodo now, who is irreversibly, like, wounded by the Witch King, you know, Bilbo feels like all of this is his fault. And it's... And it's not. But no. it's just... Um, it's really sad to see. Yeah. It, what this part really does for me is it makes this greater issue of, you know, the world and, and the fate of Middle-earth it makes it so much more personal and you get to see this real life effect that it's had. And it's not to say that Bilbo is living a terrible life by any means, but you know, he's on the run (laughs) and well, he um, wants to explore more, but like Elrond and Gandalf have told me you need to hunker down. Right. Exactly. But it's clear that there is this like wound that can never be healed caused by the ring. Right. Which I think plays well with Frodo. He has a wound that will never heal as well. And I mean, obviously the ring, but (laughs) there's all these other physical wounds that he gets throughout the story. 
And that brings us to the Council of Elrond, the real reason why all of these different peoples have gathered in Rivendell um, to speak. Yeah. And I just want to say, like, real quick, uh, I find it very interesting that all of these people are in Rivendell around the same time. Elrond says, you have been called, not by me, but you have been called. Right. Um, which I think is one of these um, references to the Valar or even Iluvatar has kind of ordained this meeting of these people. Because you have the hobbits arriving from the Shire on this dangerous quest with the ring. You have Gandalf arriving to Rivendell after having just escaped from Saruman. You have Legolas coming to Rivendell to report that Gollum has escaped. <laughs> oh my god. Oh. We'll get to we'll that. We'll get to that. <laughs> uh, you have... Gimli and his father arriving mm-hmm. to report that uh, the Ringwraiths have come and have threatened them, and also to find out tidings of Balin. Right. And Boromir has received like a, essentially a divine message through his dreams to come to Rivendell. And they've all arrived around the same time, and Elrond is wise enough to know this is the will of some greater power. Right. So these are almost like God's holy warriors gathering them together to try to destroy evil. I think, you know, in addition to this sort of divine call of the, hey, you've got to do something about this. Another aspect of this conference, at least for me, is the feeling that evil is encroaching on all edges. Mm -hmm. Um, That Sauron's domain has expanded and is now surrounding everyone else. Yeah. Well, Um, all these things that I just listed, um, they're all going to Rivendell because of a very Sauron or Mordor related issue. Right. Exactly. So it's touching everybody in Middle Earth. I just want to talk a little bit about how we're introduced to some new characters here. Mm -hmm. Specifically, Legolas, Gimli, and most importantly, Boromir. Mm Mm-hmm. I've always found it very interesting how Tolkien can be extremely descriptive about certain things and then so frustratingly vague about (laughs) others. And he does this with his, like, also character descriptions. Legolas, we're only told he's a strange elf clad in green. (laughs) Gimli, we're introduced to him in this chapter. Right. But he doesn't speak a word. We just get his name and that he's there. And then later when uh, they set out, we were told he has just, like, a simple uh, male shirt and carries a broad-bladed axe. We don't get descriptions of their face, their hair right. color, anything. Even the hobbits so far, we've barely been given many descriptors. Right. I'd say the character we have the best description of is Gandalf. Yeah, absolutely. Followed by, up till this point, I would say Aragorn. You know, mm-hmm. he's still kind of vague. We know he's tall, he's groom of face, dark hair. We with know gray. a lot of like character descriptions of him that exactly. kind of indicate look as well. But We're told not... he looks rascally, right. like a villain. Yeah. But then of all these new characters, Boromir gets a whole paragraph where we're described his face, his hair. We're even told his hair is cut around mm-hmm. his haircut, cut around the shoulders. <laughs> uh we're told what he's wearing, even down to that he has like a white I don't know if it's like a pearl clasp Mm -hmm. around his shoulders. Um, We're told he has like a horn and a shield. And so I've always found it very interesting that we get such an in-depth look at Boromir because without trying to give too much away, although I'm sure a lot of people have seen the movies by now, um, Boromir is one of the briefest characters in The Lord of the Rings. I'll I'll just end it with that. It, It seems like Tolkien really wants the memory of Boromir to really stick out to people. He's a really strong character uh, in all of his actions and descriptions. Just, it is impossible to not have an impression of him. Exactly. And so as everyone's kind of talking about how the war has affected them in their own ways, 
uh, Boromir gets a good bit of dialogue here. And I think he's contrasted with Aragorn really well. I've always seen Boromir and Aragorn as foils for each other. So we get some really great back and forth between Mm -hmm. them in this. And I think that's really important because Boromir is the son of the steward of Gondor. Yes. Which Aragorn is the heir to the throne of. And ideally the stewards would relinquish control back to the king. Now Denethor is not a big fan of Aragorn. And Boromir seems to kind of have inherited a little bit of those feelings. Aragorn's going to need like the the Support. good the goodwill of the House of the Stewards right. in order to take back the throne. And you know, after Denethor goes, Boromir would be the steward. Aragorn's kind of eyeing Boromir here as if like you're going to be my steward one day, and yeah. I need to win you over. Absolutely. And so Boromir is very proud and very. Um, kind of denying the royalty of Aragorn. Not mm-hmm. necessarily like denying the fact that he is the heir of a sealed door, but kind of like who's this ranger of the like this man of the north? Um there's all these jabs that he takes at Aragorn. He's like, you know, the sword of Elendil would be great if indeed it could return out of the shadows of the past. Right. Like, it's kind of like and Aragorn's like, "I forgive your doubt. Like I, you know, I'm this rugged man of the north. You're this princely man of the south. I love this contrast between that right. and kind of the idea of like a hero. Aragorn is sort of like what we said earlier, like he feels fair but looks more foul. Whereas right. Boromir kind of has this very classic knight in shining armor, Lancelot like feel to him. Very much and he's very uh hot headed. Um yeah. and sort of quick to judge, quick to action. Um, he's definitely ruled by his passions in a way that we've already seen Aragorn is not. Aragorn is very thoughtful and yeah. pretty methodical. and He's pretty wise, yeah. too. And he's compared, actually, to Gandalf a lot, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting. And also, he's much older than Boromir. He's, That's like, true. 87. I think Boromir is, like, 40 or something. Right. Uh, so he's, like, twice his age. What I love through this back and forth between Aragorn and Boromir, we see kind of a bit of Aragorn's bitterness. Boromir's talking big about how Gondor, we're holding back the foe and stuff. You know, we're on the front lines of this war, which is true. But Aragorn's like, it's not really fair to say you hold back everything. Because here in the north, I defend this land, me and the rangers, and there's plenty of evils in these woods here. And guess what? Your people love you, but the people here despise us, even though we defend them. Right. And I think it's worth pointing out that a long time ago, all of this Northland between the Shire and Rivendell was the old kingdom of Arnor, which was the sister kingdom of Gondor. But it, through plague and civil war and war with the Witch King and all these terrible things, eventually just fell into ruins and wilderness. So all these lands we've been wandering through with Strider, this is his kingdom. Totally. Um, In addition to Gondor. And he is... He's not like a king in exile. He's like a king in his land, but his his kingdom has fallen. Right. And there's these people in Bree that probably don't know anything about the old kingdom. And Aragorn defends them and they hate him. They spit at him and curse him. Right. And you can understand where some of his bitterness comes from, this chip on his shoulder. And I just, I've always thought that added an element to Aragorn that's really cool. Because I think sometimes he can be accused of being too much of a goody two-shoes, just too pure of a character. But... You know, he's roughing it. He says something about like, 
Oh, yeah, like Strider, I'm called to a fat man in Bree who lives within a day's march of foes that would freeze his heart if right. he were not guarded ceaselessly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think in addition to seeing, like, the difference between these two uh, characters and the geographic regions they're from, I, I personally find we're seeing a big difference between someone who is purely human, a true man, and someone who is partially of an elven line and right. clearly has had way more exposure to the other species and races of middle earth right and i think you know boromir gets a lot of crap i mean <laughs> you know he is hot-headed he's proud and we know that ends up being his undoing but i think we need to keep in mind here that lord of the rings is a story about the world of men taking over from the world of like right. magic and stuff right. it's his time exactly to be hot-headed exactly and we have all these characters, whether they're elves or men, even the hobbits kind of have a little bit of a magic about them. And then Aragorn is a man, but like we said, of Numenorean race that has like elvish blood in him. And so of the whole Fellowship of the Ring, Boromir is the only one representing true, normal, mortal men. And in that context, he is one of the best of them. Um, that's why the Valar sent him and his brother this dream, because they are like the best of what mankind has to offer. And so I think it's really easy to see, like, oh, yeah, he fell into the temptation. But, like, look at everyone else. They are not normal people. And so, again, this is a story about mankind, the age of men taking over. And I think we need to put Bormir in his proper context as the, one of the best of living men. Totally. And, I mean, it's not to say that the other people at this council meeting are without fault or flaw oh, or folly. Legolas being a great example of that. What a weird character. Yeah, and speaking of Legolas, I know we mentioned earlier about how he was coming to the uh, council to report how Gollum has escaped. And I, I just, I've always thought that's really funny, especially the portrayal of Legolas. In the movies. And especially Legolas and Aragorn's relationship in the movies. Right. We're first introduced to Legolas in the movies through him standing up to defend Aragorn from Boromir. <laughs> right. And... He's, like, very dedicated and loyal to Aragorn, and Aragorn's like, I appreciate it, Legolas, but, you know, I, I, I don't need that right now. And, but in the book, there's no indication that they've met before, know no. each other. He just knows, oh, this is the son of the Elven King, and he reports that they're, like, they've spent all this time talking about how Gollum is very dangerous. He has a lot of information that could be very harmful if it came to the hands of the enemy, and... Ah, oh, thank God he's locked up tight. And then Legolas is just like, like uh, uh, well, that's actually... why I'm here, um, to tell you he's gone. And the first thing Aragorn's just like, dude, what the fuck? What a fucking loser. Like, he's, he's just like, how came the elves to fail in their trust? Aragorn is very exasperated by Legolas immediately. It's sort of just, like, ridiculous, right? Like, Gollum is a tiny guy. Like, he's not, he's like a weirdo, but... You know, we know that the Woodland Elves are not, like, a a small faction. They have a whole dealio out there. They yeah. have a whole king, you know? Like, and, well, they say that they, you know, felt bad for him and wanted oh, him to give see... Me a, stop no, it, drinking wine and fucking do your jobs. I know, I know. And, well, Gandalf tells them, you know, that they should maybe indulge this better side of him. And Gandalf kind of knows Gollum has a part to play, and he could possibly be saved before the end of all of this he has that potential but still <laughs> the, well i love when glowin stands up and he's just like you are less kind to us yeah and, and well i always didn't like how gandalf tells him to like 
sit down and shut up because I'm like, he has a point. No, it, it's so true. Like the way the dwarves were treated by the woodland elves is it's horrible. They're essentially just trespassing and Gollum's a murderer. Go- Gollum is is key. not even just let's forgive Gollum of all of his past misdeeds. He is key. Like even if you don't want to keep him keep him as a prisoner, uh keep him under lock and key though. Like he can't get out. This is a pretty high stakes situation. Yeah, I don't have Stop a... drinking wine. I don't have a favorable view of the Wood Elves. Um, no, I, I don't either. They are infinitely more racist and worse, like, worse guards you could imagine. So Absolutely. So not only are we introduced to all of these characters who will eventually become the Fellowship of the Ring very shortly, uh, we also find out what Gandalf has been up to. And he's been learning a lot about his fellow Maya. Yeah, Saruman, who was mentioned earlier on. Even though it's just Gandalf telling about his meeting, he tells it in such great detail. It's like we're pretty much there. So this is really our first view of Saruman as a character, who is a fellow uh, Maya. He was sent to Middle-earth by the Valar in the form of these old men who people called wizards. And much like Sauron himself, he once served the Vala god Aule, who is this blacksmith earth god. And this is where Sauron learned a lot of his blacksmithing arts from. And also we, we know Saruman knows probably the most about the rings of power of all the wizards. This is like the lore that he's really decided to go in for because he is of Aule. He probably knows the mind of Sauron better than anyone, given that they used to essentially work for the same guy together. Right. Um, so he probably knows Sauron intimately. And unfortunately, he falls in a similar way to Sauron and is corrupted by the Dark Lord, much like Sauron was. So I I think with Sauron, we get a really interesting look at probably what it was like with Sauron when he fell. We never really see that in the story. We're just told he used to be with Aule and then he defected to the Dark Lord. And essentially, it's clear that Saruman is uh, not to be trusted um, and the lands that he is kind of around should not be approached in the same way. And this is going to affect Boromir's, if he ever would return to Gondor, this would affect how he went back through and whether he would go to Rohan or not. Yeah, well, he came through Rohan to Rivendell, but now that they know about this, he's returning with the ring bearer. Right. So they, they can't go that way. Yeah, this is a big alteration of their plans because otherwise... They would just go, go through, through Rohan. Saruman's lands, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that definitely complicates matters. Well, they eventually decide the ring has to be destroyed. They can't. They go through all these options, throwing it into the sea, sending it to the Valar, uh, sending it to Tom Bombadil. And, <laughs> you know, they, they systematically kind of um, refute why all of these are good options and the only thing they're left with is to go into mordor and destroy it and go through this plan of stealth and they all argue about how that's going to be done uh until bilbo stands up and he's like i get it i get it it's me (laughs) i i love this moment um this is i (laughs) this is bilbo with main character energy absolutely he's like you're not the main character anymore (laughs) um but no and i really do think i think it's ironic that this is bilbo's best moment in my opinion and he had a whole book written about him 
Um, this to me almost reminds me of the scene in the movies at the end of Return of the King when all the people of Gondor are bowing to the hobbits. Boromir is about to laugh at the very notion of Bilbo taking the ring and he looks around the room and stops and everyone is regarding Bilbo with such respect. Right. Um, because he, he could, right? Like the idea is that although he's super old, that's like really the only reason why he's not going to, but in spirit, he could. His strength of spirit is such that he could. Right. And I mean, he's already achieved great things. Um, he played a key role in the death of Smaug and the Battle mm-hmm. of the Five Armies. And uh, you know, he's already played such a huge part in history. And now he's willing to continue the story. And, and he's so sincere, too. And everyone can sense that. And I don't know. This part always gets me. Uh, I think not having Bilbo involved in the Council of Elrond in the movies was a big mistake. Totally. Um, I totally agree with that. I would have loved to have seen this in live action. I think that moment is very important and really kind of dots some I's and crosses some T's and puts a nice bow on our characterization of Bilbo. Yeah. And we also get a little bit of boredom here, too. Like, he definitely underestimates Hobbits at this point. Absolutely. That leads to, like, who is going to take the ring if Mm -hmm. not Bilbo? And Frodo is immediately filled with this sense of, like, I don't want it. I want to go home. I want to, like, just be with Bilbo and forget all this. And then almost immediately something changes and and comes out of his mouth. Yeah. Again, we're seeing this kind of divine intervention in this part. Right. This is definitely, I think, a moment of divine intervention. In the Silmarillion, we get these moments where the Valar will sometimes inspire speeches in the heroes in which they are themselves surprised to hear themselves speak. Right. And we're seeing that here with Frodo. And who knows? This may have came directly from Iluvatar. Right. Um, Frodo is the ring bearer. He's been chosen. And. You know, so that takes us into the next chapter where the Fellowship of the Ring is formed to go on this quest. Um, and of course, all of the hobbits, all of the other hobbits jump in in the fun. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we're just like before where they're like, we're not going to let you leave the Shire on your right. own. They're like, we're not going to let you go on this quest alone. Yeah. And so they're there. Gandalf is going to go. Aragorn is going to go with Boromir, at least to Gondor, because Aragorn has decided he is going to reclaim the throne. And that he's going to join Boromir on the front lines of this war. So that takes Aragorn almost all the way to Mordor. Right. Then representing elves and dwarves, we get Legolas and Gimli. I think it's interesting. Tolkien originally considered Glorfindel being the representative Hmm. of elves. But then he decided, no, this is a mission of stealth. Glorfindel is way too powerful of a being. He would arouse a lot of suspicion. <laughs> so let's get that fucking loser Legolas. No, yeah. He he intentionally went with a, a elf that is not of really any renown intentionally. Yeah. So that he would be kind of on the corner of the story, but not too involved in it. So yeah, it's, it's really funny that Legolas is a part of the Fellowship because he is such a non-character. And, it, you know, I mean, no hate. If you love Legolas, like, whatever. Do your oh, thing. No, no. All, all the hate. <laughs> Uh, but I, I have a few things to say uh, about him in the coming chapters. So they set off. Yeah. And it's immediately a harder journey than they're expecting. Yeah. Much like in The Hobbit, um, once they leave Rivendell, they try to cross the Misty Mountains. Although, in this case, they run into a massive storm from uh, Karadras, which seems to have a will of its own almost. There's this kind of debate of is this storm normal weather or is this Sauron working his magic? 
or is this just the mountain itself? Right. And I Tolkien has this theme that we'll see a little bit of in the next chapter of there are evil things in this world that maybe are not in league with Sauron. Right. Or just not evil, but things that are not working along with our characters. Yeah, not everything is uh, divided into this binary of the good team versus the bad team. Here's a really great part. I think this is one of Boromir's best moments of this journey is, well, he's the one that recommends they take wood with them into the mountains, which I think was a smart call, (laughs) so that they can make a fire. As Frodo is passing out from like hypothermia, Boromir is the one that pulls him out of the snow and brings to the attention of everyone else, hey, "Hey, the the halflings are like dying. We can't just wait out the storm in place. We need to go ahead and and see if we can find a little inlet where we can shelter. Yeah, so I I see with this, with Boromir, a lot of prudence and a lot of also like pity for the, the little folk. He's not just all pride. He's... He feels for, like, the smaller people who can't really... Yeah. Who aren't as capable. Yeah. We also see in this section that Gandalf and Aragorn have sort of become the de facto leaders of this sure. journey. Um, they are conferring between each other about different directions to go. And, you know, we, we see them having this conversation. Uh, and there's clearly a path that Gandalf is way more interested in, in seeing through than Aragorn is. Um, and then we slowly kind of learn, <laughs> as they bring it up over and over again, uh, we learn that that path is going through Moria. Yeah, Gandalf thinks that going underneath the mountains is probably the most secretive way. Right. But Aragorn has a bad feeling about this. And he's like, absolutely not. Like, the last time he's I was like, Moria, I... <laughs> fuck that shit. Like, no yeah. way. And I mean, it's not just, again, his past experience. He's having this foreboding of the future. And as we know, Aragorn's not quite a normal... Man, he does have a little bit of foresight right. on him. He would rather face the storm of Caratheras than risk losing Gandalf, which he feels like is going to happen if they go through the mines for some reason. It's very interesting to see this back and forth of them as leaders. At this point, uh, Boromir and Aragorn decide that they, they have to figure out if the snow lets up in a reachable area to their current path. And so they're two big men. Aragorn's really tall. Boromir's a little bit shorter, but he's broad. They're very strong. So they're making their way, like plowing through the snow, trying to get there. And then we have our lovely friend Legolas. He's just walking on the snow. (laughs) He's just walking, prancing around, walking on the snow, kind of like, fuck you guys. Like I can do whatever I want. I'm an elf. I'll go get the sun. Yeah. And well, I think this kind of, I think points to a larger point of the story and that we've seen this already with Gildor and the elves. They're like, we're not concerned with y'all. No. We're, we're leaving this world here soon. Totally. Um, and so Legolas not being affected by these earthly matters, like this storm, I think is just a really cool little detail. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty, it's funny, but it also does make me go like, oh, this guy, like, yeah. he, who is he? Why is he this way? Exactly. Um, and he basically comes back and says, yeah. you know, hey, it lets up right off there. This is a magical storm of some sort. Yeah. You know, it's not a normal one. Also, just for a little bit of context, Tolkien had written about like their heights a little bit. He uses these, um, I think, Numenorean standards of measure, but they've been kind of translated. And Aragorn is supposed to be six foot six. Okay. And Boromir is six foot four. Okay. So both pretty big. <laughs> yeah. And Boromir being broad at six foot four, right. he's built like a fridge. He's giant. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and so even after they do that, they're worn out. But then the Boromir is just like, hop on little ones. And yeah. he's even carrying in Pippin's just like, wow, this dude's like a badass. Right. Oh, since you've mentioned Pippin, I just want to give a little shout out to the relationship between Gandalf and Pippin. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, it's really hilarious. Every time Pippin does anything, whether it's bad or curious or just normal, Gandalf has something to say about it and is immediately like, hey. Yeah. Get your wits about you, you idiot. Come on. Yeah, and, I mean, and this pays off so well in Return of the King, but we'll get there when we get there. But after that, they go down, and this takes us into Chapter 4, A Journey in the Dark, where they are almost immediately attacked by wolves or wolf-shaped things. It's a pretty cool little fight scene. We get to see kind of similar into The Hobbit where they fought the wargs. Gandalf uses some fire, fire. magic. Yep. I, I've always found it interesting that they call them uh, like wolf-shaped things. or And then the next day they try to find the bodies and they've all disappeared. Right, exactly. So it's very clear at that point that these were not normal wolves. These are right. Sauron's beasts yeah gandalf calls them the hound of sauron mm -hmm. and as we know sauron was once the lord of werewolves and in tolkien's world werewolves were not men who turned into wolves they were this these tortured spirits that were put into these the these shapes of dreadful beasts so already right. the language is similar here i think it's safe to say i mean i personally think that these were tolkien's version of werewolves sure that were descended maybe from sauron's old werewolves right um from the days of the silmarillion and they are not the only dreadful beasts there there's also something in the water there's a large lake that they come across as they're trying to make their way to the door right. into moria in frustration and stupidity <laughs> bormir throws uh, a pebble into the lake and it's clear that something is not right with it yeah frodo has a bad feeling immediately and we, we learn that after his wound he's kind of has a greater sight he kind of can sense things better and he gets a weird feeling from this pool absolutely as much as he did not become a ring wraith it's still like he's been dragged halfway between he's partially worlds. into that world a absolutely bit. so yeah. he has he has some heightened senses and a greater knowledge of of the bad things in the world so then as they're trying to figure out the riddle of the door to moria by this lake gandalf eventually discovers the answer to the riddle speak friend and enter very Unless, simple say the elvish word for friend yep. um back in the day the uh the dwarves of moria were really friendly with the elves that lived in this land called Holland. So, yeah, there was a lot of coming and goings between the elves and dwarves. So all they had to say was like, hey, friend, and they go right, in. go right in. Gandalf mentions the reason they couldn't come up with it is these are too suspicious of times. No one would basically leave an unlocked door. Like, there's no way. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. So I, I've always thought that was really cool. But as they finally are going in, the Watcher in the Water comes out and grabs Frodo, of all people. Everyone's kind of, like, rooted to the spot. I love, again, we get these moments where we see that when everyone else is filled with fear sam leaps to action here and he immediately goes and tries to start chopping the tentacle i've always thought that was really cool they make their way in and the watcher uh barricades the door barricades the door them. and you know gandalf mentions there are older things in this world that you know again the watcher isn't really allied with sauron it's just there's something about it it's suspected that it's the fact that frodo is bearing the ring that draws the watcher to attack him exactly uh and then they're in moria 
a lot of their travels through this abandoned dwarven city is in the dark. They're hearing some information from Gimli. I, I think there's a very beautiful scene when he tells the story of Moria and what it used to be. Um, and a line that really caught my attention is that after he is done his story, they kind of have questions and stuff, but he would speak no more. He's sort of solemn. Yeah, I think it's like after he had sung his song, Gimli would say no more. Yeah. Gimli is the character of all the members of the Fellowship that were present at the Council of Elrond that didn't speak a word. Right. And so we're first introduced to him in this part of the journey where now they're potentially going to Moria, where Balin went. And we get some really great Gimli moments here. He is a character of few words, but when he speaks, he's to the point. He's very proud of his dwarven yeah, I, heritage. Yeah, well, I was going to say, like, he's a man of few words unless he's talking about his dwarven heritage. <laughs> yeah. Then he just suddenly uh, waxes poetic. And I think there's, like, a really interesting parallel with Frodo here. I'm not sure if it's in The Lord of the Rings or if it's in Unfinished Tales, but there's a mention of Gimli, how he wanted to go with Thorin on the quest um, to reclaim the mountain, but at the time he was considered too young. And so remember, Feely and Keely were the young dwarves. Right. Gimli was younger than them at okay. the time. So obviously, once the mountain was reclaimed, Gimli went to go live there. He had grown up hearing all these, again, like Aragorn, these stories of Bilbo and the company of dwarves. He's also heard a lot about his dwarven history, and it means so much to him. And now he's getting out to go out into the real world and experience these things just as Thorin and Balin and them did, and his father, Glowin. Frodo and Gimli kind of share this sort of, like, longing that now they're getting to go off on their adventure, and they're both finding out this adventure is not like that one. Yeah, they're sort of coming of age and coming to the point where it's their time to uh, go on a quest, and the world has been irreparably broken at this point. Yeah. And I think it's worth noting, like, Balin is, I think, a similar relation to Gimli as Bilbo is to Frodo. He's kind of like a cousin-slash-uncle character. Following this parallel, I I find it really sad that Frodo goes on this journey to Rivendell in which he's reunited with Bilbo. Mm -hmm. And the whole reason Gimli and Glowen had gone to Rivendell was, A, to let Bilbo know Sauron's looking for you, but also B, to find out tidings of Balin. Right. And so now we're approaching the end of Gimli's, like, one of the main reasons he's come. And it does has a much more tragic ending than Bilbo and Frodo's reunion. Absolutely. He finds Balin's grave. Yeah, and and in addition to that, they, they also find sort of the ledger that has right. documented the past 30 years of history in Moria, although it's kind of marred and, and messed up. They're able to make out a few things, but right as they're sort of having this moment of let's like oh, read about this and kind of, you know, honor the dead, the orcs show up. Right. It's immediately clear that they need to get out of Moria. There's no yeah. way out but through. They don't have any time kind of to waste. So like we can't move the remains of Balin and, and the other dwarves. We just need to take these ledgers and, and get out of here. Right. I think a really cool thing that happens here in the Chamber of Masurable, like you said, that the uh, orcs attack and... Kind of tying back to earlier when Boromir saves Frodo, this troll starts to make its way through the door and Boromir tries to attack it. His sword is notched, can't penetrate. And then Frodo 
jumps to his Sting. defense and takes out Sting. And I mean, Sting is, again, an elven blade from Gondolin. Absolutely. Made to fight orcs and trolls and evil spiders. So I think it's really cool, given their later relationship. Already, Boromir has saved Frodo. Frodo has leapt to Boromir's defense. Right. And which makes their ending of their relationship that much more tragic. They get out of there, and just as they're about to finally escape Moria, they meet this being. This being of shadow and flame. Right. It makes Legolas uh, drop his bow. It makes Gimli drop his axe when they see it. And Gandalf realizes this is a Balrog. This is another one of the Maiar, but this is one of the evil Maiar. And he's like, holy shit, no wonder. Like, this makes a yeah, lot of sense. Yeah, he, he had felt this presence earlier, but he didn't know what it was. And now he's like, oh man, a Balrog? Fuck. <laughs> yeah, and well, this yeah. totally also changes Gandalf's whole plan. Yeah, he realizes that at this point he's not going to make it out. Yeah, that I was going to be the guide for this fellowship, but he says earlier, it's best not to look too far ahead. And now they're going through Moria, and he realizes... I'm the sacrificial lamb essentially, of this situation. Yeah, and to, get, to give a little bit of uh, backstory why this is such a big deal, the Balrogs were these evil Maiar spirits, as I said, but they served the original Dark Lord Morgoth. Right. And they were thought to all have been destroyed back in the First Age. But one of them apparently escaped and has been living at the roots of Karatheros. And... Now Gandalf realizes, okay, this is like part of a larger cosmic uh, battle here of right. good and evil. And like, I'm the only one that can fight this guy and I'm probably going to die doing it. Right. I need to do this so they can go on. And, and he almost makes it out the with quest. them, but the whip of the Balrog catches him and, and pulls him down. Exactly. And I think this is a really interesting parallel to Glorfindel, by the way, who, if you didn't know, had died fighting a Balrog in the first age. He cast it down over this narrow cliff. And as it was going down, Glorfindel was known for having very long, beautiful blonde hair. Mm. It reached up and grabbed him by the hair and pulled him down into the abyss. Okay. And then Glorfindel was re-embodied and sent back to Middle-earth to help defeat Sauron. So Gandalf is just replaying all of Glorfindel's greatest hits here. Gotcha. Um, uh, quick question. Do Balrogs have wings? No, they don't. Okay. Explain why. Uh, so in this chapter, we hear about the physical description of Balrogs as it's kind of a, a humanoid being of shadow wreathed in flame. It's said that shadow started to emanate from its back like wings. And it filled... Wing-like shadows. Wing-like shadows, yeah. But then later, it says something about its wings in a very almost literal way. Whereas earlier, it was a simile. Tolkien actually uses this a lot to make metaphors and similes feel more real. He'll start off using the simile and then later he'll make it sound very literal. Yeah. But that's just to make it kind of hit harder. So Balrogs don't have wings. Otherwise, it falling <laughs> to the depths of Moria wouldn't make much sense if it could just fly up. Also, they say its wings spread from wall to wall. We know they're in a very massive chamber. So does it just have these like... It's like it would be stuck. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, imagine like a bat, but its wings are like 10 times the size of its body. Right. Um, and they're just crumpled all around it. And I personally, I, I think a lot of people love the winged beast and, and they love that image. But... Well, I'll just say the image in the movies is, it's great. It's wildly inaccurate, right? <laughs> but it's pretty awesome. And I understand why people love it, but I personally prefer the concept that what's emanating from it only seems like wings, but it's really this darkness that yeah. is taking a tangible form. Yeah. And well, I really like that it's described as a humanoid being, not an animalistic mm -hmm. being. And it's of like man shape, 
a little greater than man shape. And earlier versions says that the Balrog was like the height of a man, but it it felt larger than it mm, looked. Interesting. So the Balrog is supposed to be much more of equal stature as Gandalf. Again, these are two Maiar, one good, one evil. They should be like mirror reflections of each other. Sure. This is a good wizard versus like a, not, essentially an evil wizard. <laughs> wizard, yeah. Wizard spirit. Um, I mean, or a good angel versus a demon. So Gandalf knows he's got to do what he's got to do. He breaks the bridge. When he says you cannot pass, I mean, he is speaking with authority here from the Valar. They need to go on. You cannot pass. Right. And we've talked a little bit about also Boromir's feats so far um, in these chapters. And I want to mention something that I find very remarkable is that during this confrontation with the Balrog, initially Boromir steps up and lets a blast go on his horn and the Balrog like halts at this. And this is a being that the very horror of it makes Legolas and Gimli and Elf and Dwarf drop their weapons and just stand rooted to the spot in terror. Boromir's just a man. And he's willing to essentially challenge the Balrog. Right. Which I think is huge and says so much about his character. And then also Gandalf tells Aragorn and Boromir, like, flee, this is beyond any of you. And they won't abandon him. Right, absolutely. Um, These are two of probably the most badass men in Middle Earth. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, the story ends in tragedy here, this uh, section that we just read. Yep, and, and they're all once they get out, once they're free of Moria, um, and have gotten you know safely away, uh, they all sort of break down and, immediately and have a big emotional catharsis and and uh, realization of of their loss of Gandalf. Yeah, and I just kind of wanted to wrap this episode up with talking a little bit about the Hobbit compared to the Lord of the Rings and the structure of the journey. It starts off very similarly. You know, we start in the Shire. Our Hobbit hero goes through, you know, the wilderness to Rivendell. From there, they go to cross the Misty Mountains. This is where they first meet orcs and goblins. And like we mentioned earlier, Gandalf always had this habit of disappearing and then reappearing. And we already saw that a little bit with him disappearing when he was held captive by Saruman. The Lord of the Rings instantly kind of becomes this darker story than The Hobbit. This moment, more than any other, I think, subverts kind of those expectations of, like, the story's similar enough to The Hobbit, but then these very dark things happen. It's like, are we going to find Balin? No, he's dead. And Gandalf, oh, Gandalf's always going to be there. You know, even if he, you know, disappears. And then, like, oh, he's dead. (laughs) Now, we know he later comes back as Gandalf the White, but Gandalf just died. Yeah. Like... This guy who seems so invulnerable in The Hobbit that would just, he would always be okay. He would always, he just died. Yeah. And uh, it's a pretty traumatic thing for everyone to process. And for the reader, I think, to process too. It doesn't quite feel real. I think that just kind of goes a long way to show that even though this story started off as feeling very Hobbitish, you know, Bilbo's birthday party <laughs> kind of feels like it could have been an epilogue to The Hobbit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the story by now has changed a lot. Well, and and what is very clear at this point is that, you know, we were all hooked in, just like his publishers were, by these Hobbit stories for what is really the final installment in Tolkien's Silmarillion Legendarium. Like, exactly, yeah. Yeah. That brings us pretty much to the end of this section. Yep. For next week, we will be reading through... Chapter 6, Lothlorien, through Chapter 10, The Breaking of the Fellowship. And honestly, I feel like this book has flown by compared to The Hobbit. I don't know if we broke 
of The Hobbit into more sections? I guess not, but I think we're just receiving so much more information through this story that it's speeding a lot quicker. Right. Um, And that'll take us through to the end of uh, The Fellowship of the Ring. Of course, right after that, we will go on to The Two Towers, then The Return of the King. And then we're sort of going to spend some time, uh, we're going to spend at least a week getting ready to break into the Silmarillion. Um, And we're... We're wanting to spend some time on not just the Silmarillion, but some of the the tales that are referenced in that, but are told more deeply in other books. Right. Yeah. So far, we've tried to give you a little context for some of these stories and how they reach back to the Silmarillion. So hopefully by the time we get there, some of those characters and stories are familiar and to... everything will just click into place yeah and i mean and then i would recommend after reading the silmarillion <laughs> rolling right back into it again and um uh yeah and it makes for a wonderful reread right of course you would say that <laughs> okay uh if you haven't already please follow us on twitter at half as well pod we also have our website at half as well where we have our reading schedule that we've been following so far that kind of mark out all these episodes. We also have the Hall of Fire blog, which I know I have been promising and failing to deliver um, blogs in there, but I do have uh, a series. On it's the- not that he doesn't have blogs written. They're just not on there. I feel like you have all the, all of the materials. You just need eh, to put I just got to put it together. Yeah, exactly. But uh, we got some... Uh, some thoughts on Sauron and also Tom Bombadil that I want to do deeper dives into that we can't really get into here. So if that sounds like something that might interest you, keep your eye out. I can't promise when they'll be on there, but I will try to really focus on that here soon. Absolutely. I'm going to be working on getting our first watch through, which was on uh, the first installment of the Hobbit films. Um, I want to get that uploaded at some point. I just need to piece it together because there were a few times we had to pause and take breaks. Um, but that would be nice to get up there as well. Yeah. Um, we were fairly drunk when we recorded that. So that should be pretty, should be entertaining. Pretty funny. Well, if you enjoy listening to someone complain about CGI, then you'll like it. (laughs) Yes. Um, okay. I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as Well. Well.